You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We're joined today by Dr. Lorenzo Bedino and Jesse Morton, Dr. Vidino is the director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University's Center for Cyber and Homeland Security, an expert on Islamism in Europe and North America. His research over the past 15 years has focused on the mobilization dynamics of jihadist networks in the West, governmental counter-radicalization policies, and the activities of Muslim Brotherhood-inspired organizations in the West. He's a native of Italy, but he holds an American citizenship, and he earned a law degree from the University of Milan Law School and a doctorate in international relations from Tufts University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. He's held positions at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at the Kennedy School of Government, the U.S. Institute of Peace, the Rand Corporation, and the Center for Security Studies. He's the author of several books and numerous articles, and his most prominent work is The New Muslim Brotherhood in the West, which was published in 2010, and then an Arabic edition released the following year. I'm interested in see how that went. The book offers a comparative study of Islamist organizing in various Western countries, as well as the wide-ranging public policy responses to Western leaders. He's testified before the Congress and other parliaments, advised law enforcement officials around the world, and taught at universities in the U.S. and Europe. You can find him all over media outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, PBS, Fox News, et cetera, et cetera. And he delivers presentations to a wide variety of audiences, including policymakers, students, and the general public. We also have Jesse Morton, who is a reformed former extremist who was once a prominent radicalizer in the West. As a co-founder and chief propagandist of Revolution Muslim, a New York City-based group active in the 2000s. He helped to insert the narrative of Al-Qaeda and Salafi jihadist ideology into the American ambit. He has direct contact with some of the most prominent extremist preachers in the West, including Abdul Faisal, Omar Bakri Muhammad, and several others. After his incarceration in 2011, Morton de-radicalized, and today he rejects Salafi jihadi and Islamist ideology. He actively assisted the law enforcement community in several investigations of domestic and international terrorists, and at the same time, he helped develop tools for assessment and analysis, techniques for early intervention, and counter-messaging. So his original 11-and-a-half-year sentence was reduced to less than four years. He is now a research fellow at the Program on Extremism, and he focuses on issues such as the propaganda of terrorist organizations, Islamic and jihadist ideology, countering radicalization and extremism, and promoting disengagement. He considers this work an opportunity to repair some of the damage caused by his radicalization. Before this, he earned a master's degree in international relations from Columbia with a concentration in the Middle East and nonprofit management. He also has a BA in human services and state certification in substance abuse, mental health, and family counseling. He's lectured all over the world, including Imam Mohammed Ibn Saad University in Riyadh, 
and Sunderland University in Casablanca, Morocco. The one word I stumble over is Casablanca, of all things. <laughs> and he's widely read in classical Islamic theology and jurisprudence and historical relations between the U.S. and Middle Eastern nations. Thank you both for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you. Pleasure. So let me start with you, Dr. Vidino. Can you tell us a little about the program that you direct, the, the program on extremism at George Washington? Yes. Um, first of all, thank you very much for having yeah. us today. Um, we opened the center a year and a half ago. Uh, it was May 2015. Uh, to fill what we perceive to be sort of a, a gap in the analysis of extremism in, uh, in the States. Uh, for two reasons. Uh, uh, I think there's not a lot of places that look at domestic extremism uh, systematically. I think you have a few places that look at right-wing extremism and uh, do a very good job at doing that, uh, but not a lot of places that look at sort of the religiously inspired uh, jihadist, uh, if you will, uh, extremism seen in the U.S. Uh, and in the West in general. So we try to look at both uh, uh, and all sort of, uh, kinds of extremism in the U.S. So there's uh, tend to be a focus on our end mostly on the jihadists, but we also look at right wing, we look at militia, uh, sovereign citizens, and a variety of other of other groups. Uh, and I think we're probably the only entity devoted just uh, uh, just to that. Uh, what we also try to do is uh, look at nonviolent extremism. Um, we try to look at uh, networks, organizations that. Uh, uh, push a narrative which might not be directly violent per se, but that is conducive uh, to violent extremism. Uh, so that's kind of the analysis that we try to do. And we try to do that in a very um, fact-based, uh, uh, analytical, non-partisan, apolitical way. Uh, we try to provide facts, uh, obviously some analysis, uh, uh, but try to provide uh, policy recommendations without getting into the, the thick of politics. Well, and I think that nonviolent part of it is interesting because I don't assume that a lot of law enforcement agencies, intelligence agencies are paying attention to the nonviolent side. But they have plenty to do on the violent side. So bringing that nonviolent aspect to it, is that something that anyone's even done before? It has been done, of course. Uh, when, uh, for example, when it comes to the right-wing scene, uh, you have entities like Southern Poverty Law Center, mm -hmm. uh, other places that do look uh, at a variety of what they call hate groups, or they, they use other terms for them, that, while not directly violent per se, provide the mood music to which more uh, uh, radical and directly violent groups uh, uh, dance. Uh, the argument is that those groups uh, have the right to say what uh, what they want, there's First Amendment, uh, uh, and it is within their legal and constitutional rights to say what they want, but they are problematic. Legal tolerance doesn't equal civic tolerance. Right. Uh, so the goal of organizations like SPLC has been to expose uh, sort of a hate uh, message that comes from certain individuals, certain networks, certain organizations. And I think we're trying to uh, humbly uh, do the same thing when it comes to also well, partially right-wing organizations, uh, but also from uh, the jihadist scene. And I think you, you do see uh, that there is, whether online or offline, um, individuals and organizations that have a narrative uh, that is conducive eventually to violent extremism. I think uh, Jesse, of course, will talk about it, but the organization that he was running uh, a few years back in New York and uh, nationwide was a case in point. Right. Um, was an organization that, while not directly engaged in violence in itself, uh, 
led to the radicalization and really the formation uh, from a psychological point of view of individuals that then went on to join Al-Qaeda or to attempt to carry out attacks. And I think what we're trying to do is, because law enforcement tends to have a narrow mandate uh, and focuses for understandable reasons on the tip of the iceberg, on those that are violent, uh, it is extremely important for uh, for the media or for research centers like ours to look also at the nonviolent manifestations of extremism. So who who are your main customers? Like what, what kind of impact can you have on this as a as a research institution? Obviously you're in DC, so you're nearby your potential customers. Uh, what kind of impact are you seeing from what your work that you've been doing? Uh, our main audience is, of course, the, the policymaking community and the law enforcement community. Uh, we also work a lot with media. We try to mainstream a certain narrative that nonviolent extre extremism is important, <coughs> that radicalization is a very complex, uh, we try, uh, a very complex process. We try to provide a nuanced analysis in a discourse that is not often very nuanced mm -hmm. and very politicized. We try to provide uh, uh, to the mainstream media, sort of a, an analysis that is slightly more complex and nuanced. Uh, the interaction with both communities, whether it's the law enforcement policy community or the media has been, I would say, quite good. Uh, our work has been well received. We had a report uh, uh, back in December 2015 called ISIS in America, uh, from retweets to Raqqa, uh, which kind of mapped out the ISIS sympathizing scene in the US. We looked at the court cases of all uh, individuals uh, uh, arrested in the U.S. for ISIS-related activities, and we also analyze this, the online social media scene, and we, this is something that we've been doing very systematically, trying to map it out, trying to understand what American-based ISIS sympathizers talk about, what makes them uh, tick, what are, what are they interested in, and uh, that report was very well received. It has, it has been used by law enforcement for their training, it has been used uh, as a base for hearings in Congress, uh, it has received a lot of coverage. Uh, I think that shows uh, uh, to some degree the demand that exists there for, uh, you know, apolitical, fact-based analysis on these dynamics. So if you go on the website, you'll see that you have a lot of real top minds working for you. Uh, the bios are extraordinary. And, and one of the most unique, though, is here with us today. And and Jesse, I'm, I'm apologize that we're going to talk about you like you're not sitting here. Um, but I want to ask you what inspired you to hire Jesse for your program. I mean, he's got an extraordinary background, but what, what, what does he bring to the table? This, this seems to me to be unprecedented in the United States. I know this happens in Europe, where former extremists are, are hired on. But what, what made you uh, go that direction here? Um, you're perfectly right that it's something novel in the US when it comes to jihadists. Uh, it has been done in Europe quite significantly. I mean, you have uh, two former uh, prime ministers in the UK that used former jihadists as advisors. Mm. Uh, so it's quite uh, quite common. But even in the US, it has been done for other kinds of, uh, of extremists. Uh, you have right-wing extremists in, uh, involved in academia, former gangsters. Uh, um, last week, uh, I, I happened to watch again the movie Catch Me If You Can. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you right, think exactly, about it, it's pretty exactly, much the yeah. same story. He ends up working with, uh, with the FBI because obviously there's an expertise there and uh, particularly over something so complicated, much more than forging checks uh, as in the movie, but uh, something as complex as uh, ideology, radicalization, psychological processes um, that somebody with Jesse's background can provide and that very few other people can. Uh, the reality is that we're trying to all uh, we're trying to understand whether it's the academic community or the policymaking community, the law enforcement community. We're all trying to understand why people radicalize, uh, 
uh, why they embrace certain ideas, how they mobilize. Um, and having the perspective of somebody that he himself underwent that right. process uh, is unique. And as much as a any radicalization process is different from the next one, some dynamics are common. But Jesse was not only somebody who radicalized himself, was somebody who radicalized other people and recruited other people. And uh, um, again, every story is different. It doesn't mean that the dynamics that work for his group uh, five or six years ago also work now, but many of them do. Right. Many of them are very, very similar. So that uh, background is unique. We can have a thousand conferences with academics talking about things, but getting the facts and the dynamics straight from the horse's mouth is a completely different story. Entirely. If you add to that the fact that Jess is not just somebody who has that personal experience, but as an academic, background i mean that masters from columbia and that uh, analytical uh was analytical skills but intellectual curiosity that you mentioned is something unique so uh, it's the the marriage of those two skills the personal experience and the the academic skills i think make him uh, quite unique so we didn't set up the center to go out and uh, um, look for formers uh, to attract attention because uh, of that we did receive a lot of it uh, because of it uh, but I think it was something sort of unique, uh, uh, stumbling into Jesse and seeing yeah. that kind of marriage of skills. And you mentioned you did receive a lot of attention. There are a lot of really interesting news stories that came out when you were hired, Jesse. And, and for our listeners who don't have the, haven't had the time to look at any of the the news stories and don't know your background, kind of walk through with me a little bit. Let's, the the question I think that I have to start with is what radicalized you in the first place? Are you. You, you grew up as an American like everybody else did. Mm -hmm. Like, what drew you to this ideology? Well, I think as, uh, as Lorenzo said, uh, one thing about my story uh, that really highlights what we know with regard to the study of radicalization and violent extremism is that there's no particular profile and there's no particular um, set individual that will embark upon a path of radicalization. My story is somewhat unique, but it's also somewhat similar to what we see with regard to progressions. Um, into radical ideologies. My background was very traumatic, for example. I grew up in a very abusive household. Um, I grew up in a very interesting dynamic in the house because my father was from a very affluent family in New Jersey. My roots there go all the way back to the Mayflower. And mm. so I should have, by all means, ended up a very, uh, very American boy. Well, and let me, that, I want to make sure the listeners understand and hear that, right? You, you're, this is on audio, so you're not having sure. the visual. You're not seeing, but but look, listeners, Google Jesse Morton. All right, he's not Anwar Awlaki, right? This is a, this is an all-American boy, and right. just said that his ancestry goes back to the Mayflower. So, please resist the profiling. Continue. Right, exactly, yeah. and that's and that's the primary point. I mean, if uh, if we really talk about the broader picture, um, we do learn that there's just no particular profile. There's no particular individual that will we can say will definitely go in to a radical uh, milieu. Uh, alongside of that affluent background, my father's father, who was supposed to be the youngest Supreme Court uh, justice in the state of New Jersey, passed away when he was 40 years old out of nowhere. So my father decided to enter the countercultural movement of the late 1960s, moved to rural Pennsylvania to live off of the land, quote unquote, and met my mother. Um, who was a local working class, you know, my, uh, my, her parents were part of the depression and agriculturalists during that era transition to the manufacturing sector. And so I had that working class background alongside of the countercultural influence, alongside of this, this sort of connection to a more 
affluent uh, side of the family. So, of course, it stimulated sort of dual identities from a very early age. Unfortunately, my mom, I think through undiagnosed uh, pathologies um, and the fact that my father was uh, an adulterer, uh, basically started to abuse myself and my sister at a very young age. And I would go to community members, for example, guidance counselors at school. I would go to um, influential individuals in the community. I would go to family members and I would show bite marks on my legs. I would show scratch marks all up and down my arms. I would show bruises. Uh, And no one would intervene because Mm -hmm. the idea was we don't want to get her in trouble. Um, And so I developed a severe mistrust of the society around me. Um, And when you can't relate with the fold that you're born into, of course, you are open to alternative ideas. I remember that when I was in uh, high school, uh, while I was supposed to be in regular class, I would raise my hand, go to the bathroom, and just disappear into the library to read books by, like, Noam Chomsky, um, Brave New World, you know, the the dystopias uh, as well, George Orwell. And so what happened was I sort of radicalized at a very young age because of that um, uh, feeling that I needed to identify with something else. Um, And at 16, I ran away to um, avoid the abuse. Uh, took off into the streets and started to engage in criminal behavior. Another variable that oftentimes we do see is common, but not always existent. Um, through the course of that, uh, I got in some trouble, traveled around with co- adopted sort of countercultural mentalities of my father, traveled around with rock and roll bands, Grateful Dead. You followed the Grateful Dead around. Grateful yes. Dead, Fish. At that Again, time. not a nor- Fish and Grateful Dead, not a normal pathway to jihadism. Exactly. Yes. It's very interesting. I mean, I remember when Anwar al-Awdaki put it, after we... Um, fast forwarding a bit, uh, after we sort of were connected to the first uh, sort of uh, blonde haired, blue eyed uh, jihadi case in the, in the United States, they called her Jihad Jane. And Rod said, Now, jihad is as American as apple pie, mm-hmm. and it's as British as afternoon tea, you know? So anybody. Right. Uh, and I would be the epitome, right? The white kid, you know? blonde-haired, blue-eyed white kid from, you know, small-town Pennsylvania with uh, connections to New Jersey. Who would have thought? Right. Right. Who would have thought that I would end up on that? But due to that pre-radicalization sort of uh, experience, um, I was definitely open at a very young age. So we ha- I have to admit that, you know, my uh, predisposition towards radical ideologies occurred at a, a very young period of my life. Well, of course, with criminal behavior associated with traveling around with rock and roll bands, uh, I ultimately ended up in jail where I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Autobiography of Malcolm X appealed to me because Malcolm X, of course, was born into a traumatic circumstance, went on to adopt criminal behavior, and then transformed his life through the adoption of Islam and became a radical activist. So I started to emulate this individual research about the religion um, and ultimately converted to Islam. Of course, I didn't change my behavior early on. It's impossible to change behavior overnight, and I ended up in jail uh, again in Richmond, Virginia. And the first thing that uh, I encountered when I entered a 40-man open cell block was a Moroccan individual who was a veteran of the uh, Afghan-Soviet war. Um, And he taught me uh, about the ideology, but he didn't just teach me how to pray. He didn't just teach me how to um, perform the religious ritual. Um, At one point in time, he told me that now that I had learned a substantial amount of the religion, I needed to retake and reestablish a new identity. So I declared my faith, and he told me to go into the jailhouse shower and to scrub every inch of my body, and that when I came out, I would be like a baby born anew. And he gave me a new name, Yunus Abdullah Muhammad. And so immediately, I was able to destroy Jesse Morton Mm -hmm. and became a new individual. 
went on, uh, long story short, to progress through radical um, stages. 9-11 happened. I was totally desensitized by the time that it did. I figured we were going to war with the Islamic world, and it motivated me to play a part in it, started to expose myself to propaganda from al-Qaeda, uh, and uh, then uh, finally um, in Harlem, I started to radicalize people in the street, saw I had an ability to speak, and joined the jihadist me. Uh, it seems like your entire life has been setting up for like an us-versus-them mentality, you know, kind of, even in your home life when you were a kid, you know, you you were marginalized throughout, and it do you see that as kind of the foundation of your, your radicalization was not fitting in perhaps is the wrong way of saying it, but, you know, looking for uh, a group to, to be, you know, partnered with looking for belonging, looking yeah. for purpose. Yeah. Right. And so, yes. And, uh, not only did I find structure where <coughs> I never had any in Islam, uh, I found an outlet for what was preexistent, uh, rage and frustration mm -hmm. and I unleashed it. Uh, it is very similar to the way that the Nazis unleashed their own rage and frustration against the liberal order to tear down the world uh, as it existed because it was a cold, cruel place and to rebuild one in your, in your image, which is essentially the doctrine of Al-Qaeda and now today ISIS. So yes, uh, yeah. very much so. Anwar Al-Awlaki was known for using social media and the internet maybe better than anybody else did, certainly to recruit members in the West. And your revolution Muslim organization really used that to its full extent mm -hmm. as well. And I, you know, this is obviously the the brave new world itself for, for recruiting. What was the key to recruiting others? I mean, you were, you were a full-fledged recruiter, really, at one point. Like, what Was it understanding people psychologically? Was it using your own background? I mean, this is we haven't had a lot of conversations with Al-Qaeda recruiters before, so I really yeah. I want to kind of dig into how did you go about the strategy of recruiting others? I think sometimes there's a misconception about the way that recruitment works as if it's solely a top-down process. Indeed, we were definitely looking to influence others, not only to join our radical fold and to adopt our worldview, but also um, very um, supportive of uh, acts of violence. And when we started to radicalize, it was just uh, at the period of time when we were starting to understand that the threat from al-Qaeda abroad was not as severe as the threat from homegrown violent extremists in the United States. We identified that earlier. We saw that while most people thought that American Muslim community was uh, exceptional to a degree and immune uh, from uh, the ideology of the terrorists, um, we saw it very differently. And we laid a template and a foundation for radicalization. We followed, of course, when you engage in fundamentalism, you always justify your actions from an ideological perspective. So we followed a medieval scholar who is sometimes referred to as the grandfather of the jihadi movement. His name is Ibn Taymiyyah. And he wrote a book uh, about uh, proselytizing the truth. And he said that your job as a caller to this message is not to make everyone in the world accept it, but your job as a caller to this truth is to make the information or the truth available to those that seek it. And so what you do is you want to um, disseminate a, 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 the worldview, and people will cling to it. You know it's going to be a fringe, and that's actually part of the doctrine that you adhere to, because the, the prophet, uh, he said in, that Islam will begin as something strange, and it will end as something strange, so give good tidings to the strangers. So you see yourself as a vanguard or as contributing to a vanguard, as a small subset of the real Muslims. Uh, and um, you disseminate that worldview and people uh, cling to it. And then the indoctrination phase, once they come and they enter the fold, is a very specific top-down process from thereafter. Is that a facet of extremism where you kind of embrace the idea that you're different, that no one gets you because you're special? The you know, the, Why are they so extreme? Why are they so different? And it's one of these kind of things that you say, yeah, 
that's we want to be different. We want to be separate from everyone else. And it, and it goes back into that inability to identify with the culture that you're born into. I mean, even if I'm a convert, right? But because of circumstances in life, I was predisposed. But think about the immigrant who has these mm -hmm. dual identities, right? Uh, second generation, parents might have lost uh, adherence to the religion, and they're looking for meaning, significance, and purpose, and finding complications in their own lives, and then all of a sudden they rediscover. You know, so we might consider them converting as well, right? And uh, rather than converting maybe to a mainstream Islam, maybe you could say that we convert to ISIS or we convert to Al-Qaeda. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, basically, once you enter any fundamentalist um, ideology, whether it's far-right Christian extremism or far-right Islamist extremism, I think it's, it's really about considering yourself as an actor in this broader like um, war versus good and evil where you play a special role and imagine how um, powerful that is inside of yourself like now you are somebody who is ultimately upon a truth that very few people in the world are a part of you were able to kind of stretch the limits of legality you talked about in an article that you consulted a lawyer to see how much you could actually do without getting arrested but it was a Strangely enough, it was a cartoon, a South Park episode that kind of ended uh, your career uh, working as a recruiter. And I think our listeners may know actually a lot about this. People might remember the South Park episode that was incredibly controversial because they were going to have the Prophet Muhammad uh, in, the, in the episode as something uh, a little different than normal. Um, and the, the kind of pushback against Trey Parker and Matt Stone that... Uh, had a lot to do with what your life would look like for the next couple of years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, the South Park uh, episode that portrayed the Prophet Muhammad was one part something that was really sincere, I think, to a degree because of our extremist adherence. But I also think that when we look at the Denmark car uh, cartoon scandals, when we look at all these events, I mean, I remember the individual that posted the uh, original South Park thread on my website, which I endorsed and carried through with. Um, I remember when we talked on the phone after it started to go viral, because this thing spread all over the world eventually. And he said, I mean, think about it. He said, the Salman Rushdie situation, you know, in Europe radicalized thousands and thousands mm -hmm. and thousands of Europeans. By us taking this provocative stance, it's serving our, uh, it's serving our agenda. So it was more... Um, it was a calculative effort to manipulate or to utilize, right. you know, what was going on as a as a recruitment tool. And let me. So we have some younger listeners. Salman Rushdie wrote a book called Satanic Verses that was uh, anti-Iran, went against the the Ayatollah. They put out a fatwa against his, against his life, and so I think it's still there. Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, he's not traveling to Tehran anytime soon, yeah. but. Uh, you know, this was something he had to go into hiding, and uh, that's what you were referring to. I'm sorry to interrupt. Sure, no problem, sure. no problem. And so what happened was essentially this thing spread all over the world. You know, they say that a flap of a, uh, of a butterfly wing halfway across the world can impact, uh, induce a tornado uh, on the other side, and it did. Some uh, woman in Seattle uh, started a Facebook page called Everyone Draw Muhammad Day. Um, from there, people started to post pictures of Muhammad. Uh, people got angry. The Muslims star uh, in the United States and in Europe um, responded. Um, conflict ensued. Pakistan shut down Facebook for a day as a consequence. And the most um, significant impact was that Anwar al-Awdaki and Samir Khan, our associates, were able to utilize it as a propaganda tool. And a lot of times now in these modern terrorism cases, we see this article referred to how to make a bomb mm -hmm. in the kitchen of your mother. Yep. We had laid a 
foundation for a jihadi magazine in the English language while um, Samir Khan, the associate of Anwar Aoudaki, was here and president Inspire of the United magazine States. Is, yeah. And so the very first edition of Inspire magazine, which was when a transition occurred, whereas it was produced in the West, to now it was going to be produced within Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, was a response to the South Park scandal hmm. with the article, How to Build a, a Bomb in Your Mother's Kitchen. And that ultimately was something that I had to pay consequences for because that was participation in a conspiracy to yep. solicit murder, which made it even worse for me when I ultimately was arrested. And so, you know, at the end of the day, that is what ended my uh, my uh, performance, if you will, as a, uh, a radicalizer and a recruiter. Let, let me wrap this up and then we'll go back to everybody and have mm -hmm. conversation there. I want to talk about your de-radicalizations. Mm -hmm. I sure. think that certainly can, can tell our audience a lot about what, what brought you back from the brink. And, and you even talk about something as simple as the kindness of your captors and in, in, in looking at enlightenment philosophy and things like that brought you away. It was, so I, we, we've dealt in the past, and we actually have a really good relationship with Morton Storm, who is another person who is a Danish uh, radical who came back. And basically, his kind of come-to-Jesus moment, for lack of a better term, uh, was fighting contradictions in the Quran and not mm -hmm. being able to go fight in Somalia. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of a lightning bolt out of the blue where all of a sudden he thought Islam was nonsense. Mm -hmm. You had a much more gradual coming yeah. back from the brink moment. Can you talk a little bit about that? So when the South Park scandal occurred, I ran to Morocco. And in Morocco, I taught English and I taught to prep students for studying uh, abroad, uh, teaching them GMAT, teaching them GRE. I went to private banks, taught them you know, how to speak in English so they could attract foreign direct investment. And the Arab Spring broke out. And I quickly realized that millennial youth in the Arab world want nothing to do with the utopic uh, state that I was promoting. They really want what we possess, which is democracy, liberalism, and freedom. Uh, that induced a sort of change in mindset, but I don't think it was ultimately a, you know, a, an, an epiphany or a, a moment that just, oh, okay, now I'm changed, right? And I think de-radicalization, just like radicalization, is usually a process, not an event. From there, I started to watch propaganda coming from Al-Qaeda in a little bit of a more critical lens, not ultimately. I was still promoting their message, right? But it, inside of myself, uh, it started to shatter. Um, what I uh, thought was uh, a, a reality was not true. I was picked up in Morocco, ultimately charged for the South Park offenses, um, and I was flown home uh, from a Moroccan jail on a private jet by a Secret Service agent, FBI agents, uh, Navy SEALs, et cetera, et cetera, rendition style. And they dressed me in the orange garb, and I, you know, I imagined I was going to Guantanamo. They put me on the plane, and the first thing they did was take the blinders off, take the earplugs out, and throw a Quran in front of me. And then they asked me, what do you want to be called, Yunus Abdullah Muhammad or Jesse Morton? And awkwardly enough, my experiences in Morocco induced me, I think, somewhere deep down inside to say I wanted to be called Jesse Morton. And that's when I knew I was somewhat changing. When I returned to the United States, I was housed in solitary confinement, waiting pre-trial. But there was a guard there uh, that um, decided she was sort of opposed to the idea of solitary confinement. And she took me for her 10-hour shifts four days a week to the law library, where I did contact, to, make contact with the Encyclopedia Britannica's great books of the Western world. And I started to read John Locke, Rousseau, Thomas Paine, re reconnect with the founding mm -hmm. fathers of the United States, and found myself um, understanding uh, the role that the Enlightenment played in pulling Europe and Western civilization away from sectarianism and away from uh, conflict based in fundamentalism and, and the importance of studying the world from a more empirical perspective. Uh, thereafter, I was forced to, at first to communicate with law enforcement as part of a condition of the plea bargain that right. I took. 
the FBI agent that was there, a female FBI agent, showed severe empathy. And long story short, over time, um, I took a likening to her because she was humanist in her approach to me. And we got a lot of work done thereafter from investigatory and analytical perspectives. And then I was able to revisit the ideology. I'm still mm-hmm. a Muslim today, but I was able to understand that the fundamentalist interpretation was flawed and that uh, the influence that the Enlightenment philosophers and the post-Enlightenment philosophers had on me allowed me to go back and revisit a religion from a more rational perspective. The only thing that radical Muslims hate more than non-Muslims are Muslims that have turned against radical islam are, are you are you afraid for your life are you constantly fearful that you're going to be targeted uh you know you're in dc now it'd probably be very difficult to do so but uh you've now been outed as an informant the washington post took care of that long before you planned on probably doing it yourself mm-hmm. what is your day-to-day like are, are you thinking about that as a possibility uh, uh, is that something that worries you i mean of course um the the idea that a former extremist can be valuable when I got out of prison was being promoted by the president of the United mm-hmm. States, by everybody in government, and uh, seeing what was happening on the ground and identifying the fact that this was a very serious threat here in the United States and wanting to make amends for what I did uh, and being someone who was able to sacrifice for a cause previously made me, you know, m- makes me um, assume risk. But we've assessed risk, and many people, many agencies, uh, many institutions have assessed risk, and I don't think there's any risk at this point. Right. A lot of talk right. from exactly. people that I used to be associated with, but essentially that's what they do, is talk, and they want other people to carry out uh, the, uh, the actions. So, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't foresee... You can't live your life that way, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now. So let me... Let me You've already mentioned this, Dr. Venino. I want to direct our audience again to your report, ISIS in America. I I took the time to kind of work my way through it. It's huge, but I took the time to kind of work my way through it. But I think anyone wanting to understand ISIS operations here in the United States, this should be really their first stop. And I want to ask, how did this come together? Because it seemed to be a living document. You've updated this every month. This is something that wasn't just, you know, almost a year old now. This is constantly being updated. Um, and it seems like social media has just really taken on this life of its own. It's being embraced wholeheartedly by this sect, by ISIS, by the people here in the United States who are trying to promote this ideology. Um, obviously, that's not going anywhere. Uh, so, so can you talk a little bit about this project and how it came together and what it's being used for? I know you mentioned it earlier, but just yeah, no, a little of course, bit on that. Of course. Um, and as you said, we, we keep updating, we keep working on it, we have monthly updates. Uh, we basically wanted to provide um, sort of a, a general overview, but again, fact-based, uh, um, about the scene of ISIS sympathizers. So we basically had two strands of the, pro- the program. One was uh, looking at all the legal cases, everybody who's been uh, who had been indicted for ISIS-related activities, and back then when we uh, released the study in December was 84 people. I think we're up to 110 uh, now, uh, which are a very large number by American standards. Show 
uh, that the US is not subjected to the same uh, problem that some European countries have. Uh, but if you compare it to the mobilization that we saw with Al-Qaeda back in the early 2000s, uh, it's significantly larger. So there's much many more people that are attracted to this. And we try to also uh, look at who these people are. Um, and as Jesse was saying, there's absolutely no common profile. It's absolutely staggering the diversity of individuals uh, that have been charged in the US. You have men and women, 15-year-old uh, uh, kids, 55-year-old uh, uh, men and women, actually, recently. Um, 40% of them are converts back when we published this, this study. And again, even the converts, you have uh, Caucasians, African-Americans, mm. Latinos, Jews. Uh, socioeconomic backgrounds differ uh, enormously. Uh, so we, we try to look at that scene and describe it. And the second part was, you know, if you want to see who these people are, you also want to see what they talk about and what better place than social media, because that's the place where really everything is visible. Mm. Um, and uh, Twitter... Uh, was, I would say today is less, I'll get to it in a second, was the um, outlet of choice of that crowd. Uh, you basically have um, a few hundred individuals that are uh, American-based that are fully engaged uh, in supporting ISIS, in talking about ISIS, in spreading the message online, and they all kind of know each other. Uh, now, whether they know each other also in the physical space, mm -hmm. it depends on case to case, but online there is kind of a bubble. Uh, where everybody knows everybody and they talk about uh, um Obviously, the stuff you can imagine, uh, you know, they, they post to uh, videos. A lot of it is material that they themselves produce. So it is true that there's a top-down effort by ISIS in producing videos. Many of them are high quality, but a lot of the, the propaganda is produced by kids who are very good with computers. They themselves right. are very good at creating propaganda. Um, but they also talk about very benign and boring uh, things it's a fascinating community to to observe again we're talking about uh, uh, often american kids uh, who might discuss uh, and i kid you not an episode of the kardashians uh, and 10 minutes later talk about how lucky mm -hmm. uh, you have in many cases very confused kids right. uh, but social media allows uh, uh, this community to come together and of course uh, it's a big component of the radicalization process and we see it from the very beginning from the moment people get in touch with the ideology all the way to mobilization and carrying out attacks this is one of the the novelties uh, we've seen in many cases when people carried out attacks uh, that they were tweeting uh, as they were carrying out the mm. uh, the attacks i mean the, the way they are interconnected it's it's fascinating at the same time one point we've been trying to make is that it's not just about social media I think that's the most visible part, mm -hmm. uh, but in most cases, and again, each case is different, and we have people who have never met a like-minded individual in the physical space and are just active online, um, but in many cases, radicalization is a process that takes place both online and offline, and the two kind of complement one another. Um, like everybody else, they, uh, every, everybody who has been linked to ISIS activities has a Twitter uh, profile, a Facebook page, uh, but that doesn't mean that their activities stop there. Right. Just because it's easier for everybody to pull up those profiles when these individuals get arrested, it doesn't mean that we're not also active offline and part of small um, social networks where you're active online. Uh, again, sort of the dynamics that we see in Europe, but just on a much smaller scale. This may be an unanswerable question. I, for the 40% that are converts, is it as likely or perhaps as likely that they would have become... Uh, converts to another form of radicalization, far-right Christian radicalization. I mean, if they're a white guy from Idaho or, or a white woman from the middle of the country, 
if they were exposed to, you know, far-right Nazi hate groups uh, as a younger person before they were exposed to radical Islam, uh, do they just have the personality that would kind of pull them? It's like the addictive personality for some people that would have pulled them into that ideology versus Islam. I mean, again, I don't know if we can answer that question, but do we have signs that that's around? I mean, I think as uh, one French academic oftentimes put it, uh, it's not about the radicalization of Islam so much as it's about the Islamization of radicalism. In the academic literature, we talk about waves of terrorism. And fundamentalist religious extremism is uh, a particular wave that we're going through. Um, for me, uh, it, it was true, you know. Uh, but um, uh, I oftentimes say about myself that had I been born 25, 30 years earlier, I would have been uh, proselytizing on the factory floor uh, rather than outside the mosque, mm-hmm. you know, and identifying more with like uh, communism or a far left uh, ideology. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that that's accurate. And you do see some cases of individuals who are converts or engaged in ISIS activities who were previously engaged with other alternative ideologies uh, um, against society, whether it's uh, uh, hardcore left-wing, uh, whether it's some cult-like uh, uh, activities. Uh, there are people that, for one reason or the other, did not feel like they belong mm-hmm. uh, into society and they found any kind of message that was against society. And obviously, in today's day and age, no message is more against society right. than ISIS. So, uh, let me ask a question about the there seems to be an uptick of violence here in the United States specific to ISIS followers whether it's San Bernardino or Orlando is this a sign of ISIS's strengthening or weakening in the Middle East because you do see clear pushback militarily against ISIS territory and ISIS forces um, but you're not seeing actually you're seeing a rise in the kind of inspired violence other places. There are people that have argued that this shows ISIS is getting stronger. There have others argued that ISIS, this is kind of the last throws, the insurgency. Is there an answer to that? Is this something that's completely separate? Does it matter what happens in the Middle East, what happens here in the United States? That's about 20 questions at once. Yeah. Either of you want to take it on, be I'll happy to. part of it. Yeah. You can finish it off, I guess. Um, it does and it doesn't. I mean, okay. what happens in the Middle East matters here. I mean, uh, the attacks that we have seen in the West uh, that are ISIS-inspired basically follow three different dynamics. There's some that are directed by ISIS. Um, it's very, very clear chain and command structure, the way Al-Qaeda used to operate, mm-hmm. and I think Paris and Brussels are those kind of attacks. And we've seen a few of those, and those you can to some degree link to an ISIS strategy, uh, direct strategy. We've not seen any of that in the United States. Uh, the other two dynamics, we see attacks by individuals who are somewhat linked uh, to ISIS. They are in contact with somebody mm-hmm. in ISIS, but they act independently. Garland, Texas, uh, was an attack, uh, basically, that followed that pattern. This is some, uh, somebody with two individuals who are tweeting, direct messaging, uh, with somebody in Syria as they are about to go right. and shoot uh, the event there. They are connected, although neither of them had ever set foot in Syria. Um, but obviously somebody in ISIS is uh, egging him on, as, as the FBI director said, it's like the devil on the shoulder telling him, right. kill, kill, kill. I, I, would that be like the analogy to Walaki you know, and uh, Nader Hassan and the Fort Hood shooting, kind of someone saying, keep doing what you're doing exactly. from afar? Okay. but even more direct with social media okay. ads, but the uh, immediacy, right. uh, till the very last minute okay. there's somebody there uh, almost inciting you. Uh, and then you have, and this is what we have seen for the most part in the U.S., uh, 
uh, individuals who have no connections whatsoever to ISIS, but they are uh, they are inspired. Uh, again, each case needs to be treated differently. We don't know all the facts, but I would say that Orlando, uh, probably Chattanooga, San Bernardino, perhaps New York, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, follow that uh, sort of pattern. Um, now. I think that's a strategy per se that ISIS has of sending out the messages, exactly what Jesse was saying about just radicalization. Mm -hmm. uh, you send out the message, it's the Ibn Taymiyyah strategy applied to the 21st century through social media. Send out the message that jihad is everywhere, that the war is global, that you can kill infidels in Raqqa or in Mosul or in Orlando or right. Chattanooga, and it's the same thing. And um, w whether that comes at a time when ISIS is doing great on the ground or doing terribly on the ground, I don't think it matters that, right. that much. Well, I mean, I think uh, just to follow up on that briefly, uh, I, it also is an indication uh, that um, at once we are fighting a physical war, but at the core of that physical war is an ideology. Right. And so we had during Ramadan Abu Muhammad al-Adnani, who's recently been killed, uh, issue a, a declaration that we celebrate attacks where you are at nothing pleases us more than to see you attack in the west basically telling them don't come here and join the state yeah. and carry out attacks at home and we saw the effect uh, all through the month of, the holy month of ramadan for muslims um there was attacks everywhere from bangladesh all, uh, to the omar mateen situation we also tend when we understand these um attackers to port to believe that they are oftentimes solely lone wolves. So in Europe, we portray them as lone wolves, and then we might reverse and see that there was direct contact. With Omar Mateen recently, they released a transcript, and the media and the even the law enforcement community at first sort of discussed him as a deranged individual, mm -hmm. uh, someone who probably had sort of homophobic issues or was himself uh, homosexual. And when they released the transcript, it was apparent that not only had he pledged allegiance to the leader of ISIS, but he knew that a commander in the field, Abu Wahid, was killed. That means that for him, his attack was not revenge or a following uh, adherence uh, to, a, uh, to a, a command or a directive, but was actually a consequence of him encountering uh, this idea that a commander in the field had been um, taken out. Um, very few people would know about that if he wasn't heavily embedded inside of that ideological adherence. So again, it's just an indicator of right. the role that ideas play with regard to mobilizing for action. I think sometimes we underestimate that. Well, let me ask you specifically about that. We try to stay apolitical as much as you guys do uh, on this on this show, but there doesn't seem to be a national strategy for, for countering violent extremism. Is, is this because of political differences? And the reason I'm asking that is I looked at all the articles about when Jesse was hired. And there were ones that tended to be, you know, saying this is a great idea. There were some that were more neutral. And then there were some that were George Washington just hired Osama bin Laden to work. I mean, it was basically, you know, those on the right were not so happy about, uh, or they were using it as a political point. And again, I, I don't want to make a left versus right argument here, but I want to say, are we missing out on developing a, a broader strategy for countering violent extremism because of belief systems of, people, whether it's the far left saying, let's hug every Muslim because they're all good, or the far right saying, let's kick out every Muslim because they're all bad. Is there not a happy ground in between that allows us to do some real work here and in, in figuring out how to stop this? No, I think you described it very well. That's exactly <laughs> where we want to be. Mm -hmm. That is literally why we set up the center, mm -hmm. to have this kind of debate, which is fact-based, where the truth is at the end of the day kind of in the middle. I think there's, you're right. Um, there's part of the left that for a variety of reasons, most of them well-intended, 
uh, refuse to acknowledge it as an ideological problem. And it's, uh, it's what somebody in the UK has called the racism of the low expectations. It's thinking that uh, racism, extremist and authoritarian ideas can only come from the West, from, from white people, let's mm. put it like that. When in reality, you have in any community, you have some forms of extremist ideas and uh, uh, Islamist ideology in its different manifestations, whether violent or nonviolent, is inherently problematic. Um, not just in a Western setting, and I think that needs to be uh, to be acknowledged. It doesn't mean that it's Islam or Muslims in general, a small percentage of that community, but, but it does exist as a problem. The problem on the right, on the other hand, is that, of course, they um, make the problem much bigger than what it is. They link it directly to the religion. They use a language that is problematic. They want to you know, kick out everybody mm -hmm. that is, uh, is Muslim. Uh, and obviously, uh, that is a very counterproductive uh, approach. Uh, neither approach is really fact-based. Uh, I think that's what we try to do, and uh, again, humbly, uh, providing evidence and doing so in, by having a tone that it tries to appeal to right. both sides. Let me, let me ask, are we becoming too fixated on ISIS? Uh, is there an Al-Qaeda resurgence? Are we, looking at, are we not looking enough at domestic non-Islamic terrorism? I know that J.M. Berger, who, who works with you, just did a comparison of white nationalism and ISIS on social media, kind of looking at the two Nazis versus uh, ISIS. Uh, are we, are we, I know you guys focus beyond ISIS, but are we as a country, are we as a uh, foreign policy, national security institution, paying too much attention to ISIS at the risk of being hit by somebody else uh, outside of that? I'll start to follow up. Sure. You are yeah. fine. Um, I think it goes to what Jesse and I have been saying, that it's about ideology, yeah. it's not about groups. Uh, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, Lashkar-e Taiba, I can go on for days with different names and uh, acronyms. Uh, they're different incarnations of the same ideology. Let's say hypothetically that both ISIS and Al-Qaeda were to disappear tomorrow. If the ideology that is behind them, which at the end of the day is quite similar, it's almost identical. Um, were not to disappear, we would find other groups, uh, right. other entities, uh, uh, and we would have the same, if not bigger, uh, problem. Uh, so there is a bit of a fixation. And we do see, because a lot of the work we do is looking at the grassroots, is looking at people who are attracted to an ideology. And they're interested in, not ISIS, not Al-Qaeda per se, they're interested in jihadist ideology. Sometimes I find it, for example, puzzling when um, post-New York, a couple of weeks back, people were surprised that uh, uh, the alleged perpetrator of the bombing uh, was in his document, in his, the journal that he carried with him, was praising both Al-Qaeda and ISIS in different ways. Mm -hmm. And people were puzzled to say, oh, but these are two groups that are fighting one another. To a guy in New Jersey, <laughs> the squabbles between the two groups matter very little. Actually, he probably finds them quite annoying. Mm -hmm. He's interested in jihadist ideology and whoever uh, carries out that message and attacks against the West. So as long as we fixate on groups in general, I think we, we're missing the well, big what, picture. When an entire chunk of Congress doesn't know the difference between Sunni and Shiite, how can you can think a, a teenager from New Jersey is going to understand the differences between the two as well? Mm -hmm. do, you, do you want to touch upon this uh, as also? I, I, can, I can follow up a little bit. Yeah. I think what Lorenzo said covers most of it. Um, but it, it is true that what we don't really recognize is that 
the Salafi jihadi ideology is common across group. Mm-hmm. The core ideology, the political grievance and the way that it's framed and the targeted objectives and goals shift. But what we're seeing is a dispersal of that message and the, the rise of groups, whether their affiliation is Al-Qaeda or ISIS. And I remember when the first division occurred between ISIS and Al-Qaeda, um, when uh, Jebhat al-Nusra in Syria announced that they weren't going to accept the announcement of the caliphate and that they were going to remain allied with Ayman al Wahri. I was doing uh, from prison um, investigatory work, and people were writing me all the time, like praying, you know, that the two merged. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it's not just the New Jersey case. I mean, Omar Mateen did the same thing. Like a, a coworker says that he talked about Hezbollah, whether the coworker understood that or not, but he was taking and pulling from both sectors. And I think that that's what we have to look at as the future is that there's even a possibility that with the dissemination of ISIS, they will return to a merger, that a lot of the ISIS fighters will run and flee once their state is decimated mm-hmm. and join Jebhat al-Nusra in Syria. So we, we have to think like this, right. and that's why we do, again, we have to... Uh, we can't reduce uh, the way we understand the issue to a solely military uh, military one and a solely physical one. At the core, this ideology um, lives on, and it goes way back in history. It's just devolved or, uh, you know, metastasized, right. if you will, and it will continue to do so. Let me let me wrap up with the final question. I, uh, I, I hope this isn't uncomfortable, but let, let, let's ask this because I think I want to know this, whether the audience does or not. Is Jesse an anomaly? Uh, and I know there are handfuls of people in Europe that have been rehabilitated, uh, but are they and you, Jesse, the exception that proves the rule? Or, or widespread rehab something that we can strive for? Is this a tactic or even a broader strategy that we can try to do in order to change the dynamic of, of this problem that we have? No, we, we do believe that he is not an anomaly. I mean, actually, we have interviewed other people in the U.S. Uh, um, who are embraced the, the ideology at some point and in one way or another have either de-radicalized, as I would say Jesse has, or at least disengaged, uh, so no longer involved and in, retain a certain mm-hmm. mindset, but are no longer interested in uh, being actively involved in, in the group. And I think we do see uh, from experience of other countries that, that it's uh, quite common, uh, that you will have people who, uh, for a variety of reasons, it might be very deep philosophical or purely personal mm-hmm. disillusionment, uh, getting married, uh, um, or really seeing that uh, the core ideology is bankrupt, uh, have walked away from the jihadist movement as with any other group. I mean, as you might have detected an accent, I'm Italian of origin, uh, and the way the Red Brigades mm-hmm. uh, were one of the ways, the reasons why the Red Brigades were dismantled in the 70s and 80s was that because a lot of them walked away and started uh, because they saw the bankruptcy of the the, tact- the ideology and the tactics uh, that the groups used uh, um, and walked away spontaneously and started challenging the group both operationally and intellectually, ideologically. So that, that happens and I think we at the center have been encouraging um, the creation of uh, programs, uh, whether run by government or, or even better by civil society, to favor prevention of radicalization, rehabilitation, de-radicalization, fully aware that's not, that's not the silver bullet. Right. It's not going to work 100% of the time. I mean, nobody would be so naive to think that. But even if it works only 20% of the time, 30% of the time, there's enormous value there. Well, Lorenzo, Jesse, thank you so much. It's incredibly educational and informative. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, 
You can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.